My guest today is my friend Miles Taylor. Miles was a former Trump administration official in the Department of Homeland Security. He was the chief of staff to the DHS. Miles, like many of us, reached a point where he decided he couldn't play that game anymore. In September of 2018, he wrote a New York Times op-ed called I'm Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration, anonymously, of course. And then he wrote a book in a year later called A Warning, which was an inside look at the chaos and the dangers that existed inside the Trump administration. Miles left the administration, has become a public figure who opposes Donald Trump, like many of us in this uh, in this long battle. He is now a part of the Forward Party, which is trying to do the hardest thing in American politics, and that's launch a third party. Today, we're going to talk with Miles about a little bit of his history with the administration, about where he sees the country headed, what the Forward Party is all about. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Miles, tell us what you've been up to lately, and uh, and let's then, then let's cover some of the uh, the festivities we've been experiencing the last couple of weeks. Yeah, for sure, Rick. It's great to be with you. Uh, I also love listening to you. I think you've got the best radio voice. You really should read <laughs> bedtime stories for photo for for people. So we may commission you to do that. Uh, I, uh, I look. I've been up to a lot. I mean, right now I'm I'm on this what I call a quixotic odyssey. Get out your dictionaries to try to create more choice and competition in the American political system. Okay. A lot more specifically, we're trying to start a third party and uh, I co-founded something called forward. And really what we want to do is go run genuinely independent candidates, especially in places that are not competitive. So think deep red districts where MAGA has a chokehold over an area of the country and where Democrats have no hope of beating an extremist. We want to go run a common sense principled leader to try to shake those districts up around the country. So really excited about that. We will have ballot access in about 20 U.S. states by the end of this year. We've got state operations right now in all 50, um, you know, about 50,000 volunteers in all 50 states uh, and really trying to look at 2024 and, and what races, again, we can shake up. I mean, the last data point I'll provide you is people are pretty blown away to find out that about 70% of the races in this country are uncontested because one of the two major parties has such a lock on it that um, only one person ends up running because the other side knows they have no hope. That's pretty stupid. I mean, that's just pretty fucking stupid that <laughs> that our democracy, yeah. the one thing that should be competitive, has largely become uncompetitive. So mm-hmm. uh, we're trying to change that. But at the same time, you know, that means teaming up with the good guys against the bad guys. And, and right now, you know, the, the Democratic Party is the one that's the bulwark protecting democracy. So we've uh, this past cycle teamed up with Democrats in a lot of places to especially mm-hmm. go after the MAGA side. Well, that's, that is, you know, one of the big, the big challenges of a third party is making sure that you're targeting it in a way 
that doesn't advantage the side that wants to break democracy, that doesn't give, you know, that doesn't split off uh, and give moderate Republicans a place to run to if they should be voting for, uh, you know, a, a Democrat in a competitive seat like that. Because I think that's always been the sort of challenge of like, how do you make sure that that if one side of the political equation right now in the Republican Party wants to basically break democracy, how do you not do more damage in that thing? So it sounds like you guys are trying to calibrate that in a way that that that, that meets that challenge. Well, yeah, it's the, uh, you know, it's the traditional spoiler argument, but you go back to that stat that I just said, if 70% of races are uncontested, the system's yeah, pretty fucking crazy. spoiled as it is, right? It's, that's then, it's pretty spoiled. So, you know, when it comes to the MAGA movement, ideally, you know, we would attract a lot of middle of the road conservatives over to our cause right. and deprive the GOP of, you know, the votes they need to have a MAGA supermajority. And and we've right. been seeing that. I mean, we've been seeing disaffected Republicans come our direction in droves, but we're also seeing that with some disaffected Democrats. I mean, look, there sure. are super, super blue districts that even the no Democratic question. Party says, oh man, we got to get rid of some of these people and put some normal folks in. So right, hopefully right. we can be a tool in the Swiss army knife of the pro-democracy movement to go, uh, you know, have a uh, a moderating influence on our uh, republic. So you you mentioned the toughest thing in any third party organizing, and and Reed Galen and I have both been to this rodeo. Reed is an, is like one of the experts of this of the, of the five guys in the country that I know could tell you about ballot access more than anybody else. He's one of them. But how 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 much trouble have you been having with that? How's that going so far? Have you done the easy states first? Obviously, there's a few that are that are pretty easy to get on the ballot. And how much resistance are you getting out there in the states? Uh, very little resistance, and. It's sort of, uh, as you guys know, it's tiered. There are some states sure. where it's as easy as filling out a piece of paper. You Correct. go turn it in at the Secretary of State's office and like, you are a minor party. Boom, it's happened. Right. There are other states where they say, here's a hundred hoops. 17 it's voters take in you every- seven years. And, yeah. right. <laughs> you got to um, go to, to 12 voters in each county and, and they've got, two of them have to have a dog. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, honestly, I mean, look, the, the real answer, Rick, is- um, it's so far beyond our headquarters apparatus. So we've got sure. about 40 or 50 people at headquarters. And, um, but it's mostly folks on the ground in the States volunteers who are making this happen. And I would have predicted when we announced that we were going to merge a couple of organizations to try to build this architecture, I would have predicted sure. that by the end of this year, we'd maybe have five or 10 uh, States, but close to half the country will have done that largely because of the signature gathering efforts of people on the ground. Mm-hmm. And and there are people of all political stripes that are just really, really frustrated at the gridlock and want to help make sure. this happen. And some sure. have stayed in their parties, by the way. I mean, we've said to folks, you don't have to leave the Democratic or Republican parties to come participate in our efforts. You can be uh, you know, a forward Republican and come help us and still vote for Republican candidates. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we are also still going to endorse people from the two major parties uh, that are good guys in key races. So we're not going to run a forward person every race. In fact, we want to go defend the handful of moderate Republicans that are left within the party. And we want to go defend. <laughs> yeah. And we want to go defend vulnerable Democrats in key races. So, you know, Abby sure. Spanberger, for instance, we were out there in Virginia working hard to make sure yep. that people yep. like Abby got reelected because they are really important for holding democracy together. So that's actually selfishly what I as a voter want. I want a political party that goes and puts its attention and influence where it's needed to protect democracy. Right. And, and that's that's how we're trying to craft it. 
Well, I mean, I think the ballot access question is one that, that, that that's the real tough one, but I think you guys are probably doing this the right way by doing it from the bottom up in a lot of ways. You're not trying to do the, the thing of, oh, I'm going to be a presidential candidate and go out and try to patch it together as an independent at the last, you know, a, a year or two years before that. We've seen that with McMullen in 2016, which was really tough. And I was involved in that and yeah. Howard Schultz and, you know, looking at it in for the race at that at 20. So all those things, I think, you know, if you're building this up from the, from the ground up, I think you have a better possibility of, of two things. One, not, not provoking that immune response that the two major parties have to anything new, because they, they really do have a powerful immune response on that. And two, building up, you know, candidates at the lower level who do not feel like the only incentive is on the far left or the far right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, first on the presidential, um, I always call out the obvious in the room. I, I think that because one of my co-founders, Andrew Yang, ran for president, people mm-hmm. assume that, you know, we're a secret Andrew Yang Trojan horse for the presidency. <laughs> uh, and I can assure folks that, you know, w- we aren't running a presidential uh, race. And, and in fact, if we were planning to run someone for the presidential, we are doing a horribly <laughs> shitty job at building the infrastructure because we're not doing anything. Right. <laughs> so, right. so, you know, that's not our focus at all. I mean, you know, if Andrew went off and did that on his own, that's, that's his prerogative, but the organization sure. is just, it's not for that. Um, really the key, if you, if you look at how uncompetitive our democratic system has become, the key to start fixing that is actually at the local level. A lot of the races that we're going to go try to run are mayoral races and county supervisor races and state rep races. And those are places where folks want to see new faces emerge. And that's where the new faces are going to emerge. They're not all going to emerge tomorrow and decide to run for the United States Senate. you got to start building a new generation of independent leaders. And so we're going to do a lot of investment there because that's been uh, overlooked. And, uh, you know, look, it's a, it's a hard road. Like I always say, this is the Mount Everest of political challenges. Absolutely. As a, as a political scientist, which is not a real scientist, nor do I think it's a real science, but let's just say we are those, uh, we, we deserve that moniker, uh, Rick, not real scientists. That's the moniker you and I deserve. I'm not a real scientist. But if you look at the numbers, the reason political violence and intimidation is surging in this country is because mm-hmm. people feel like they don't have an outlet. And that's not speculative. That's just what all of the data shows is they sure. feel like the sure. system is not working. Therefore, you have to go around the system. And it's the same thing we see with political extremism in democratic countries all through the 20th century when that's that happens. Right. And often that that's results right. in civil unrest. It can potentially result in civil war. So how do you arrest that development? You create new safety valves, pressure release valves for that energy. And it means you create more political choices. So, you know, most of our other peers across the ocean have competitive multi-party democracies. And that means that when an extremist faction emerges, like a MAGA, it doesn't take over one of the two major parties. It goes starts its own little tiny party. And if it wants influence, it has to coalition with others and moderate its views. Right, um, right. So we're not there yet. And that's a that's a multi-generational challenge, but we're hoping we can kick off that process. Okay. Uh, so in terms of when folks come to you and say, okay, we don't like what the Republicans here are doing. We don't like what the Democrats here are doing. And they ask you the hard question of, of new parties. What do you believe in? What is the structure? Uh, you know, yep. they, they, People tend to want in this country an ideological framework of some kind. They want to feel like, are you pro-life? Are you pro-choice? Are you individual liberty? Are you a strong guy? It's become a shorthand 
a lazy shorthand, I grant you, but a shorthand in this country that, you know, you can get people to describe their ideological takes in a few sentences for most uh, Republicans and for most Democrats. What is, what do you, how do you guys handle that answer when people say, what do you believe in? What are your, what are your, what's your, what's your underpinning philosophy? What are your policies? What do you, what are you after, uh, you know, at the end of the day? Well, there's, there's a very real answer to that. And you have to have one because to your point, yeah. you know, if you open a new big box store and you want to bring people in and they say, what do they sell? And you say, well, you just, just show up and find out. <laughs> people Stuff. are not going to show up and find out. So this, this may sound overly simplistic, but because it is pretty simple, which is the, the slogan for this organization is not left, not right forward. And that can be applied to every single issue including the most controversial issues that the two major parties don't want to talk about or that candidates seize up. We're sort of unafraid to say that because the positions that we take on the key issues are the positions that the majority of Americans take. So abortion, scary issue. People don't want to talk about it. Well, guess what? A majority of Americans, 70 plus percent, believe that you know, believe sort of in the Bill Clinton, you know, characterization of safe abortion should be rare. safely and rare, yep. right? Like the majority of the country believes that that's an easy position for a major party to take. Same thing with climate change. The extreme left says we've got to totally upend and rearchitect the American economy. And the extreme right says climate change isn't even real. Well, the majority of Americans are somewhere in the middle. They're like, yeah, we got to do something about this. No, totally don't right. upend our lives. So issue for issue, you know, we're sticking to that moniker and saying, we're going to try to represent that majority view. And it just so happens that the people who are exiting the two major parties are the ones that characterize themselves in that silent majority. So, you know, half of the country now says they're political independents. They're not in either party. And that's the largest that number's ever been. And it's the largest it's ever been because they feel the least representative, at uh, least represented by the two major parties than at any other point in modern history. Yeah, I think that I think the type of voters you're talking about are the same types that we've targeted at Lincoln for three years, which are the Bannon line voters. They tend to be independents who are behavioral Republicans. They tend to be mm -hmm. more educated, slightly higher income Republicans. But there is a frustration growing that, and this is a frustration that both parties, you know, have a responsibility for, that the that that both parties have become this sort of like code-worded only Burger King versus McDonald's fight. It's Coke versus Pepsi. And they don't feel like that there's an engagement at, at a level that, that is meaningful in their lives. And, yeah. and while there's an entertainment complex built up around pushing both those narratives, uh, it's unsatisfactory with a lot of people, I think. Um, yeah. Except and I think unlike you, I think that, that an analogy, like, you know, Coke did a really good job at remaining cool. You know, every time yes. it looked like it was going to be uh, stale, you know, they reinvented themselves. And the two major parties, if I was advising either of them, is they need to seem cool again. And they have done a terrible job at brand management. Not, and, neither neither party is cool. Yeah. And 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 look, the the in 2024, the largest voting block in America will be Gen Z. They're going to be yep. the largest voting block in America. And this is a generation that's obsessed with their brands. And why do they love their brands like Patagonia and, you know, Apple? Because those brands morph to their identity. They fit their identity. They let right. them be whoever the hell they want to be. The two major parties are like, well, let's just tell you from the top down what the fuck you believe. And that's what you have to believe. And if you don't, you're not right. in the tribe. That's totally the antithesis 
of this sort of brand focused generation. And so uh, I, I think we'll see that. I think as the parties start losing in places that they didn't expect it, they're going to start reinventing themselves, but that may not always be the way that they want. You know, the surge of the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts is not an anomaly. That is part and parcel right. of the GOP trying to reinvent itself to cater to extremes. Everybody's got a morning ritual. Uh, I know I do. And I want to feel like I'm getting my day going. I want to feel like I'm moving. And more than coffee sometimes, it's making sure you're clean, squared away, put together. You can get your day started by upping your shave game with Harry's sleekest razor yet, the craft handle. I like to use it because I've got to shave this giant dome of mine every day. So I got to keep it shiny. I have a beard, but I keep my neck clean front and back, do all the miscellaneous trimming. And the new craft handle, it actually is a lot more precision, at least that I found, with the new grip. I really like it a lot. You'll be getting quality shaving for a really amazing price. For now, they're offering the craft handle starter set for 10 bucks. It's a $17 value. So this is something you really should try. And if you don't like it, it's on them, guys. They stand behind the product. They guarantee it. How can you get a hold of the craft handle, the latest, greatest from Harry's? It's simple. Get it delivered to your door for 10 bucks at harrys.com slash enemies list. That's harrys.com slash enemies list. The, right. The, their, their idea of, of reinvention is that they're going to go into this sort of transgressive entertainment space where they're going yep. to be the ones, the loudest voice in the room. They're going to scream louder. They're going to cause more trouble. They're going to engage in the owning of the libs, the ritual bullshit of all that. And, and, and look, the squad on the other side is, is it plays a similar, and I'm not a both sidesism guy. I'm really not. But I know as a former Republican strategist, you know, every day that, that the squad is talking, it's a gift for the, for the Republican party to go out and say, to the normies still in the GOP, hey, you know, you may not be like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates, but otherwise it's communism. Yeah, and yeah. we hear that a lot. We hear that a lot in the in our political dialogue, where where the, the idea if you don't stick with the Republican tribe, you know, the next thing that happens is you know mandatory Sharia gay marriage and drag queen story hour in every preschool. Yeah, you know, that I mean, that, it sounds like, like a wild TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I'd pitch that show. I'd pitch that show. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're the, the tribalism, the inertia of tribalism is probably your biggest opponent in this thing rather than the states. Although you, I think you will find in some of the states uh, on ballot access, their, their, their immune response when it kicks in, they will, they will move heaven oh, yeah, and earth yeah. to keep They'll third parties crazy just to squash it. And they have in places, you know, you've seen that in, in New York, where, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when Cuomo was governor, you had, you know, third parties that were trying to get on the ballot and he squashed yeah. them. Yeah. Um, that'll happen in a lot of places. And but I think at the end of the day, you mentioned tribalism. You know, the founders had to confront this sure. you know, 250 years ago, Absolutely. which was the ultimate conclusion was man by his very nature is rapacious and greedy and combative and tribal. And the only thing you can do is not try to get rid of tribalism, but pit it against itself. And in a sense, mm-hmm. that's what creating new parties does, is it creates new tribes for people and it limits the influence of the other tribes so that they have to cooperate to get things done and they have to work in coalitions. Um, my dream before I die would be to see that America has started to open the door to coalition government a little bit so that you right. have, you know, let's say breakaway Republican you know, rational Republicans teaming up with the Democrats in government. I mean, we we were this close to seeing well, we that this, during we the had Kevin this McCarthy the, vote. But we, we had this in the past. We yep. used to have 
conservative Democrats from the South and the Midwest, and we used to have liberal Republicans from the Northeast and the Northwest, and we used to have conservative Republicans from the Deep South and conservative Democrats. We used to have this, this, and frankly, it's way before your time. This is uh, when, when, when Gingrich began the Conservative Opportunity Society back in the late 70s. Their mm-hmm. idea was we're going to blow up everybody to our who says left. who says that's before my time, Rick. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> uh, but when your when, face can also look like this if you're in your 40s and 50s, folks. Yes, well, I am. <laughs> as, I, I am in my very, very as late in my 50s as I could possibly be right now. But you and got the heart the of a 22 year old man. It's the I love mileage. It. I, I, you know what? I'm I'm very blessed on certain things. And I have the energy level that I, I've always had. So I, I, I never get tired. Um, but I will say this. I didn't mean to you knock know, you off your point, Rick, but it's, oh, just, it's fun to do. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> but when those guys started this movement, uh, mm-hmm. it, it accelerated this idea that you had to have ideological purity. And, yeah. and I think that has made it harder for people to stay engaged in politics and harder for people to want to be involved in politics because you're told – you know, if you're if you want to be in this party, you got to believe all this crazy shit. Right now, if you want to be a Republican, you have to say January sixth was a tourist visit, and Donald Trump is the legitimate president. Joe Biden cheated to win. You have to say that essentially, and I think that that those shit tests that go on inside both parties now, but the Republican Party more more particularly, it drives away a lot of potential um, expansion in the two parties. So that I think is a space where you guys can do some operating where, where a lot of these behavioral Republicans who are independent voters or non-party affiliated voters, but they're behaviorally Republicans. I think a lot of them are gettable with a center party that, that, that is more open to, to, to some ideological squish on either side of the equation. And just a party that's open to, genuinely innovative and new and fresh ideas. There's just mm-hmm. not a sense that anyone's willing to get creative in their thinking about the political process. And we're on the cusp right. of some absolutely brain melting technological <laughs> movements. Like, oh, I mean, yes. the emergence of artificial intelligence, it, sure. it's going to transform every single industry on the planet. Is government going to be ready to transform itself? You bet your ass it's not if the two-party system oh, just stays Please in the no. crusty way it is. So we need to be innovative in our thinking about the political system to adapt to these massive societal changes that are coming. So no hopefully question. we can play a role in, in that. But, you know, I, I would take a, I would stake out a different position than you a little bit on the both sides-ism. You know, I am a both sides or not that both sides are equally as bad at the moment. Certainly my former party, the Republican Party, uh, represents the greatest threat to democracy. I still very much believe that because it's been hijacked by an autocratic movement. But, you sure. know, very close friends at the highest levels in the Biden White House have said that they have a deep-seated fear that the far, far left will gobble up sane Democrats and that they're just on a time delay from what happened with the Republican Party. I hope they're wrong, Um, but I think we have to be on guard from what we've seen in other democracies that, as you kind of hinted at, Rick, it's it's pretty consistent throughout history that you see an extremist movement emerge on one side and the justification on the other side becomes, well, we've got to fight fire with fire. And then you see the situation spiral. We're not quite there yet, but that's certainly a possibility, especially if we see a savvier successor to Donald Trump emerge onto the scene and keep that MAGA movement unified. That is, I think, a really big danger. 
I think you're exactly right there. I mean, look, it's it's the it's the Franz von Papen excuse. You know, I, oh, Hitler was bad. We knew he was bad. It was horrible, um, and we knew what was going to happen. But you know, otherwise, it was communism. And, and <laughs> exactly. that idea that that you have a, a hyper partisan response to a, to a, an external threat ideologically is one thing, but in mm-hmm. terms of, of philosophically, it's been, that's a space I think you guys can really operate in effectively is to give people something where they don't feel like they have to be in one circus or the other. It's one of the yeah. things that drew people to the Lincoln project is that, you know, we were a bunch of former Republicans and, and, and former conservatives who were just like, okay, we're not playing that game anymore. We're going to call balls and strikes. We're going to, we're going to be real about what's going on. And while we didn't do a party building operation, um, it's certainly there. There were certainly people drawn to that movement. I think there are people drawn to an idea that you can you can have a an America centric uh, set of political beliefs that aren't bound to you know one of the one of the ideological signposts that are at the far edges of the of the horseshoe. Yeah, well, you guys breathed really new life into coalition campaigning in 2020. I mean, I think in no small part you all and the other disaffected Republicans really through the election. Um, you know, folks yeah. can argue otherwise, but it, it really as, as but they would know, be wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Um, which is really impressive. And I, I think it's really exciting to announce to your listeners today that Rick Wilson's joining the forward party. Um, <laughs> I, I just, we'll uh, see. Keep are, pitching. Are, are, Keep are we pitching. able to announce it? <laughs> but, but we, but, but to your point, are you, you on know, the ballot in Florida yet? Uh, we have submitted Florida's in Florida, we have submitted in Florida, we have an, an unbelievable executive team in Florida and some really kick-ass operatives. Nice. Um, and in Florida is a really interesting place, uh, right now. It's very dynamic sure. politically. It is getting redder, but it's not necessarily totally getting redder. It's, yeah, uh, but the thing is, big like, purple bastions there. Nonpartisan affiliated voters, NFAs in Florida, NPAs in Florida, are the fastest growing group by an order of yep. of about three times the speed of the Republican Party. The Republican Party finally invested a ton of money doing voter reg in Florida. The Democrats can't register a voter for their lives in Florida. There's there's like one outside group that spends like 20 grand a month to do voter reg that beats the Florida Democratic Party every time. It's, it's insane. Yeah. But there is a, Florida is a state with some very red areas, but there are also some very purple and blue areas as well that are wide open. Um, for and because the Florida Democratic Party essentially doesn't exist, I mean, mm-hmm. you can't put the number of Florida Democratic operatives on a table at a Waffle House. Um, yeah. because what it doesn't exist, me, though, is we are going to see. Um, I don't think people are ready for how fast the political demographics are going to change this whole future of work thing and remote oh, work that we're dealing with, it's going to change it. But actually, I think for the worse, because if you look at the data, it really shows that localities, red localities are getting redder, blue localities are getting bluer, and people are moving to the zip code that reinforces their pre-existing political views. And so because folks are more able to move, we're probably going to see that trend accelerate going into the 2020s and the blue districts getting bluer and bluer. I think that's probably right because you have a lot of people now who overtly market the idea that, hey, if you want to live in a, in the free state of Florida, um, yeah. I mean, they're, they're pitching Florida now as the, uh, you know, the reddest place on earth. Um, 
and and California is doing you know Gavin Newsom's playing playing the same flip card in California saying yeah. oh come here you can be you can be progressive and feel safe um yeah you know, I, it's but interesting I think- when you say that I asked a uh I won't dime him out because I don't know if I can say this but uh, a big democracy figure who's putting out a book mm-hmm. this year I asked him about right-wing secessionist movements because there had been this poll last year that showed sure. that 66% of Southern Republicans wanted to secede from the Union. 66%. How'd that work out last time? <laughs> two-thirds of Southern Republicans want to secede. Yep. And so I was talking to him about it, and he said, you know, in my sort of far-out estimation, he goes, I actually think the first state where there could possibly be a successful it's secessionist California. movement would be California. And and we talked about that for a little while, and it just it's so not where my head was at. But you could see a scenario. Imagine another Trump gets elected. Yeah, you know, the first state that would probably want to peace out would be California. Well, there's a, there's a scenario in California a few years ago where they were thinking about how do you draw California into six new states? Yeah, three Republican, three Democrat, and but. California is is essentially the size of France in terms of GDP and population. It could easily pull this off. Um, and, you know, Texas has always flirted with it. Florida has occasionally flirted with it. Um, but I think that, you know, secession comes with a whole batch of other things. And I think if you offer people something a little better than secession, um, they'll, they'll choose it every time. Yeah. Um, because it's like a lot of other things that go on. It's like, it's like, it's not as easy as it looks on paper. Yeah. Um, well, and we sound in talking about it, Rick, I mean, 20 years ago, this would have seemed like a totally Looney Tunes. Right now we're just like, Oh, well, yeah, we're talking about secession. (laughs) And and I was chatting the other week with, uh, one of my former colleagues in the Trump administration, Fiona Hill. And Fiona had done a lot of research on this in the years before she went into the administration and since, and, the comment she made to me is she said, well, I believe we're already in a period of soft secession where states are building legal legal regimes and cultures and institutions that are so different from each other that they're sort of soft seceding and laying the predicate for actual secession at some point. And it's just, it's mind boggling to hear someone as serious as Fiona uh, very soberly make that case. But I think she's right. You know, I think there's a, I think there's a, a scary a scary good argument there that if you look at California and New York in response to the Bruin decision on gun control Mm -hmm. on the second amendment and the Dobbs decision on abortion, they've just decided they're going to opt out of the, of that. And you're looking at States now uh, like Texas and Florida that want to basically opt out of Obergefell on gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And they're going to, they're going to try to barely stay over the line constitutionally speaking, you know, on both sides of this equation. And I think that is, I think that's a profoundly dangerous place for a republic to be. Mm-hmm. Because as much as Republicans like to say, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Granted. But if you have a republic where people don't play by the same rules, you don't have a republic anymore. You have mm-hmm. something very, very post-constitutional. Right. So, well, Miles, thank you so much for coming on with us today. I want to look look forward to keeping this conversation going in the future and uh, and look forward to seeing how the forward party gets it gets off the ground here this year and wish you guys the best of luck and uh where can people find you on social media miles they can find me at miles taylor usa on twitter and rick it is always great to be with you and uh i I always want to know what you're drinking because you do have that energy and so if if you ever want to invite me to do ads for 
Rick Wilson sports drink. Uh, I'll do it. Rick Wilson sports drink. Fire you up in morning, afternoon, and I'm the evening. liver king. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you tell me, my friend. Well, you know, keep all eating right, your guys. B12 and that sort of thing. Appreciate you, Rick, and thanks all for right, all you thanks, guys Thanks, brother. Do. Have a great one. Talk to you soon. The stars of today's enemies list, fucking tankies. Not all of you know what tankies are, but for those of us in the last generation of cold warriors, and there may be another one coming right behind us, tankies were folks who would always defend whatever the Soviet Union did. It goes back to the Prague Spring where a lot of very far left communist adjacent and socialist adjacent British intellectuals defended things like the Soviets attacking civilians during the Prague Spring. It has always been with us. There are always members of the left in various countries who can't stop cheering for that handsome Joseph Stalin or that fabulous Fidel Castro or that wise Mao Zedong. Well, this season's tankies are here in America. This season's tankies are Republicans who want to end the funding to Ukraine, even though Vladimir Putin and Russia are engaged in daily attacks on civilians, are engaged in outright war crimes, are engaged in the most heinous and grotesque abuses of the laws of war that we've seen in our lifetimes by an order of magnitude. And there are people in the United States who would really prefer for this country to switch sides, who would like us to be on the side of Vladimir Putin. They include people like Rand Paul. They include people like Matt Gates. They include people like Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar. You'll be shocked to know that the same people that talk about America being weak in the world are the ones who want to bow down and flip sides in a just war fighting back against Russian aggression in Ukraine. So when you see Republicans and when you see figures in the media like Tucker Carlson and Glenn Greenwald, who both apparently believe that Vladimir Putin's ass smells like rainbows and honeysuckle, when you see them talking about defunding Ukraine, when you see them talking about flipping sides, when you see them making a case for the grotesque war crimes that the Russians have engaged in, these are tankies. They are on the enemies list, and they always will be. This has been the enemies list. And if you've been enraged or engaged or enlivened by this week's episode, let's do something about it. This podcast is part of Resolute Square, a new front in the war to preserve democracy. We were looking for a place to fight back against the MAGA media, and this is it. In addition to this podcast and many others, each week, Resolute Square members will sit down with me and other founders for an intimate meeting of the minds, talking about what's really going on behind the curtain of American politics and analyzing the minds and the motivations of the people that are shaping this country's future, good and bad, along with exclusive analysis and insight from our newsletters, which are anything but conventional wisdom. And yes, we'll also have merch to make the MAGA heads in your life furious. And more. Become a partner in this fight at ResoluteSquare.com slash enemies. And folks, if you could like, subscribe, and rate the podcast, I would be enormously grateful. And I cannot tell you how grateful and how heartfelt um, your support has been for this podcast and for these conversations. And we look forward to many, many more. Thanks again. Thanks again.